warm welcome on this very cold night to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. I'm Caitlin Malcolm, the Public Programs and Education Manager here. And tonight, to celebrate one of our uh, exhibitions, which is Yale Bartana, Europe Will Be Stunned, is our talk on a sort of homecoming, which looks at this idea of the Kimberley Plan, which is really a history that might have happened, but never quite did. I'm going to introduce our first uh, speaker tonight, who is our moderator, Ben Napastek, who uh, is quite a, for a very young man, has a very illustrious career already. Um, he gained a degree in arts and law from the University of Melbourne before taking up a graduate fellowship at the John Hopkins University in Baltimore. He returned to Melbourne to become editor, and its youngest, of the monthly magazine in May 2009. After eight years of writing about books and ideas for more than 40 newspapers and magazines, he is the co also co-editor of the Jacqueline Rose Reader. Um, and I should mention, Jacqueline Rose will feature in our upcoming catalogue, the accompanying catalogue to the Yale Bartana exhibition. Please make them welcome. Well, thanks a lot, Caitlin, for that warm introduction, and thank you, uh, all for coming along to this evening's event. It's uh, a great delight that ACA's Yale Batana exhibition has given us an opportunity to, um, to discuss this often forgotten episode uh, of Australia's history. It's interesting to me when I was just Googling around about the, the Kimberley scheme, how much of the opposition that the scheme faced owed to the same kind of xenophobic anxiety as the characterised debate about multiculturalism and immigration in Australia today. The recently resurgent debate about Australian multiculturalism, what some perceive as the problem of unassimilated immigrants for a coherent nation, the distaste some feel towards the idea of ethnic communities living by their own customs and laws sound very much like some of the voices that were once made against a Jewish colony in Australia. Yet it was the Australian Jewish community itself, ironically, that presented some of the most strident opposition to the plan, just as today we see many immigrant communities being among the most aggressively opposed to a humanitarian refugee policy. The Kimberley Plan did have widespread public support, however, and particularly from Western Australia, where the colony was to be housed. So what went wrong? Could the dreamed of settlement in, in such a harsh terrain actually have worked? And what do the obstacles that bedeviled the project tell us about the way that Australians saw themselves then and how we continue to see ourselves today? Our speakers this evening are Ellie Golvin, chairperson of the Australian Zionist Youth Council, Rebecca Forgas, Director of the Jewish Museum of Australia, and Leon Gettler, journalist and author of Unpromised Land, a wonderful book about the Kimberley Project, which won the 2003 National Book Council Prize. So I'm going to invite each of the speakers to make a brief address, following which we'll have the opportunity to uh, have a, a more freewheeling conversation and some questions from the audience. But first up uh, is Leon, who is also the author of, of Organisations Behaving Badly, a Greek tragedy of corporate pathology, and a freelance business writer for publications including The Business Spectator, The Australian Financial Review, Smart Money, and Business Review Weekly. Please join with me in welcoming Leon Gettler. Thank you. I just want to start off by saying, I mean, I... The Kimberley scheme has been with me for a large part of my life. About can you can you hear me now? Oh, do you do want me to pick this up and hold it? Okay, is that better? Okay. The Kimberley scheme has been with me for quite a while. I I first, in fact, most of my life. I I first came across it about a hundred years ago, when I was nineteen, and I was uh, interviewing Yossel Bergner great artist, and uh, I said to him, how did you come to Australia? And Because uh, he'd spent some time here, and he told me that his father, Melachavich, had done Aliyah to Australia. His father, Melachavich, had come here 
to look at setting up a Jewish homeland in Australia. I was absolutely intrigued by this story. Now, so I started researching it and then as I started researching, I came across this amazing story about the Freeland League and Dr Isaac Steinberg. And uh, so Malachavich was the beginning of it. I think this story has a particular resonance with Australia because Australia is very much a country of immigrants. The first white settlers here, well, the white settlers here were the first boat people. And it's, uh, and we've always, and the question of immigration has always gone to questions about identity. Who, who are we? And it's particularly important at the moment when we have this debate going on, as uh, Ben pointed out, about, uh, you know, questions being raised about migrant groups living by their own systems and codes and uh, we're, deporting, we're deporting refugees to Malaysia. It has a particular resonance now. It's very much an Australian story. Now, I want to start off by saying that, so between 1939 and 1945, Australia went through an incredible transformation. In 1939, it was an xenophobic enclave of Anglo-Celtic culture. Uh, six years later, it was poised on a trans, uh, post-war migration boom, and that was to permanently change the nation. World War II had a lot to do with by exposing Australia to international pressures, but a lot of it came from one man, a religious, orthodox Jew, Dr Isaac Nachum Steinberg. Dr Steinberg while being an Orthodox Jew, was also in Lenin's cabinet. Incredible man. He was unstoppable. He wanted to create a Jewish homeland here. And what, so what followed was a meeting, I could only describe it as a meeting of the exotic and the laconic. Um, the Australians didn't know what hit them when he came here. This is a remarkable story about Australia, the Jews and a retired revolutionary. And it's a story about the intersection of... Uh, character and history and about how Australia came very close to changing the course of history by looking at establishing a Jewish settlement here. Um, and it would have been the greatest single land development in Australian history. And just as settlers made the deserts of Israel bloom, they would have done, they promised to do the same here without they said, without any cost to the Australian taxpayer. So where does the story begin? We go back to 1903 when the British offered the Jews a homeland in Uganda. Uh, they offered it to the Zionists, the Zionists split, but Jews being what they are, when you get uh, a group of them together, you'll always have dissent. <laughs> and a group of them broke away and became the territorialists. And they wanted to establish a homeland wherever, an independent state. And they looked all over the world. They looked at places like Angola, Brazil, Canada, uh, curiously in a place called Cyrenaica, which is now Libya, and of course Australia. Now support for the um, territorialists faded with the Balfour Declaration, but it, it revived with the rise of anti-Semitism in the 1930s. So in July the 26th, 1935, several Jewish groups in London formed the Freeland League for Jewish Territorial Colonisation. Now, the Freeland League was different from the early territorialists because the Freeland League this time weren't say they didn't want an independent state. They wanted to set up a Jewish enclave living within the confines of a nation and they would follow that nation's laws. They didn't want an independent state. Now, Australia, uh, and preferably that nation had to be democratic. Now, Australia, with its Westminster tradition, huge open spaces was ideal. So what they did was that they uh, had discussions with the deputy, then Deputy Prime Minister, Earl Page, um, and uh, they also approached the Australian High Commissioner in London, but that came to nothing. Now, this concept of establishing a new Jerusalem in Australia was to resurface in 1938 through the efforts of a journalist called C.H. Chomley in London. Chomley was a big advocate for bringing the British out to Australia to settle Australia. He was a great believer, he was an Australian, he believed that Australia had to populate or perish, but he couldn't ignite the empire-building spirit of the Brits. So he decided, he, said, he wrote pieces saying, let's hand this over to the Jews, because they need a place at the moment. This is in the 1930s, 
anti-Semitism was on the rise. The Freeland League seized on the idea and they got into a discussion with uh, the pastoral firm Connor Doherty and Durack. The Durack family had driven cattle across the Kimberley. Now, the problem for the Durack family was the bottom had fallen out of the beef market in the 1930s. So they were desperate to offload the land. So it became uh, quite, quite good. Now, this was an area bigger than Belgium. It was uh, 7 million acres for 75,000 Jewish refugees, people who would buy by the laws of Australia. They'd bring into Australia the best scientists and engineers and technicians, and it would all be bankrolled by the Freeland League. And unlike Palestine, the land was so sparsely populated and underdeveloped, um, there was little chance, they said, of antagonising the few people who lived there. Uh, I might add that Aborigines at that time were invisible. Aborigines never came up, OK? Um, now, the main stumbling block, of course, was the Commonwealth's opposition to large-scale settlements of any particular ethnic group. So Michael Durack hit on this bright idea and he approached the Commonwealth Government and he says, look, the Freeland League is actually a British organisation because it was formed in London. He said, they're Brits. We can hand the land over to them. The Commonwealth Government said, mm, OK, <laughs> fine, <laughs> OK. And so the door was open. The Freeland League had its foot wedged in the door. Now, they sent their secretary, Dr Isaac Nachum Steinberg, to sell the Australia. Now, as I said, Isaac Steinberg, I mean, at the age of 29, he was the first Commissar of Justice in Lenin's Cabinet. He, um, he, was, a, he was a social revolutionary. As I said, he was an Orthodox Jew at the same time. He was a remarkable man. He studied his doctorate of law at Heidelberg University, specialised, his thesis was on Talmudic law, came back, joined the social revolutionaries, became an activist, went into uh, Lenin's Cabinet, in all that time, he kept kosher. He would lay his tefillin, his phylacteries, every day. The story goes that Lenin's cabinet couldn't meet on Saturday because Steinberg would not attend. Okay. He was a skilled politician. He spoke seven languages, and he had a tremendous force of personality and blistering intelligence. Frankly, the Australians didn't know what was going to hit them when he came here. Um, he got his visa, he came here, he met with the West Australian Premier John Wilcock and he set out on a mission with a scientist, George Melville, to explore the region. They spent three weeks there and they came back with this vision of Jewish uh, refugees taming the wilderness, establishing farms, uh, secondary industries like tanning, canning fruits, uh, vegetables, manufacturing jams, leather products, mats, bricks. Uh, they dam rivers um, and they'd create an agricultural miracle. And he assured the state government that... Um, they wouldn't have to pay for anything and they had nothing to worry about the loyalty of refugees and they'd follow Australian laws. And his writings at the time, I've got to talk about his writings at the time, he said, um, he wrote about a world where, and I quote, settlers would write Jewish poems about the kangaroo and the kookaburra. <laughs> Yet their voice would be the voice of Israel and the sigh of their songs would be Jewish. Is it not clear then that in such teeming life of young and old, Jewish life would again organically arise? Folk songs, natural wit and wisdom would be born out of all this toil. Jewish happiness and sorrow, Jewish memories and dreams would be spontaneous in such a settlement. Jewish religiousness and liberal thought, the quest after the divine, the longing for justice on earth, all would thrive on Kimberley soil, just as it thrived in many lands. Now, it struck a chord in, with the Australian public, particularly in Western Australia, which has always had this thing about population or perish. The West Australians have always been like that. And the history of Western Australia is always, it's filled with stories about how they tried to populate parts of the, parts of the state, which always came to nothing. Um, so the, the scheme was debated in Parliament, and it was a vigorous debate, and it really, you know, do we have these Jews settling here? Or, you know, how else are we going to populate? And it was summed up by one West Australian MP who got up in the Parliament at the time. He says, it boils down to one thing here. Are we going to have Jews or Japs? And um, Professor Walter Murdoch wrote a piece in the West Australian where he says, Israel's extremity is Australia's opportunity. The West Australian government supported it, which was extraordinary. Steinberg then approached uh, the Australian government the Australian government uh, put it on hold, but in the meantime, 
because it was just too hard. But in the meantime, Steinberg started amassing this massive public support, this huge one-man campaign. He had uh, people from um, uh, the head of the ABC, leading businessmen, scientists, judges, the church, the entire church, all Catholic, Presbyterian, Methodist, Anglican, they all supported him, and the unions as well. The ACTU saw it as a blow in the fight against fascist ferocity. And there was widespread debate about it at the time. I mean, most of the papers, Sydney Morning Herald was all for it, the Argus was all for it. Others were, you know, the Bulletin predictably wrote about um, you wouldn't want the Jews there because they would swarm into the cities, quote, even if they have to burrow under wire netting. Um, but the most vigorous opponents of the scheme were the Jews themselves. Um, part of it was the Anglo-Australian Jews who were settled here and they didn't want these foreigners upsetting the apple cart. The other ones who were the most vigorous opponents were the Zionists who saw it as siphoning away their efforts to establish a homeland in Palestine, in Israel, and also they saw the potential for the British to play a double game. That if Australia set it up, the British could play Australia off against the Zionists. And so you've already got a space. And, um, and you know, so they launched a vigorous campaign against it. So Steinberg approached the Commonwealth Government. Uh, the Commonwealth Government rejected it. And eventually Steinberg went back um, and what little chance there was of a Jewish colony in Australia evaporated in 1948 with the establishment of a state in Israel. Uh, Steinberg, in 1948, Steinberg died in New York uh, nine years later. Um, and there are, look, there are serious questions about whether the scheme would have worked or not. Um, maybe it would have collapsed within a generation. Would the Jews have stayed there? Um, we, we don't know whether the Freeland League would have had quite had the banking, would, would have had the money to bankroll it. Uh, because the scheme never came to fruition, it remains one of the great imponderables of, of this curious tale. But it's a significant development because it highlighted the issues which helped shape Australia's post-war development. What's more important is the debate about the Kimberley scheme was the debate about migration. And that debate about migration was what set was one of the founding stones for the post-war migration boom. And that's the significance of the scheme. So the Kimberley scheme helped shape the nation. Um, it helped, and so the unfinished Kimberley episode is part of a much broader story about the development of a nation. And um, it takes on a deeper resonance with the events we see today. And, um, and it's a reminder, uh, these events only serve to remind us how fragile these sorts of developments can be. Thank you very much. Thanks, Leon. Our next speaker is Rebecca Forgas, who has been director of the Jewish Museum since April last year. Rebecca has a master's degree in Jewish studies from Monash University, a master's degree uh, in women's studies from Oxford as an experienced lecturer and curator. Please welcome Rebecca. Hanging on the wall in a corridor at the Jewish Museum of, of Australia is a painting from our collection, one that most of the staff and volunteers at our museum walk past every day on our way into the building. It's a painting which I confess the I'd never really understood the significance of until I was looking into and thinking about my, my topic for, for what I was going to talk about for this evening. It's a painting called The Impresario by the artist Jossel Bergner, who Leon was talking about um, himself, who lived and worked in Melbourne from 1937 until 1948 and was a major influence on Albert Tucker, Noel Cunahan, Sidney Nolan and others. The painting shows a figure in, black, in a black hat and long black coat floating high in the sky over the landscape of the Kimberley. In his hand is a sign, a white cloth with Yiddish writing that says, the Yiddish theatre of the Kimberley. The painting is Bergner's imaginative depiction of the real life quest of his father, Melech Ravitch, who Leon also started telling us about, a Yiddish poet who arrived in Australia from Poland in 1933 on a mission to find a homeland for Jews in Australia. 
I believe he was also on a fundraising mission for Yiddish schools in, in Warsaw. Having witnessed the rise of Hitler and anti-Semitism in Europe, Ravitch convinced a group of Jewish businessmen and intellectuals to send him to Australia to explore the possibility of a Jewish settlement in what seemed to be the furthest and safest place in the world. With official permission from the Australian federal government, apparently a letter from Einstein and a Kodak camera, Ravitch travelled across the desert, accompanied by an Italian driver and a young Aboriginal assistant. In his travel diary, he wrote in Yiddish of his encounters with the Australian outback of, and those of you who speak Yiddish will forgive me for my accent, I hope, of Fablonzete Kamlin, of lost camels, kangaroo gayug, kangaroo hunting, and anachas zuzayen fi ihr fliegt mein boomerang, the pleasure of seeing a boomerang fly. Ravitch's son, Jossel Bergner, had arrived in Melbourne from Warsaw as a 17-year-old in 1937 and, as I said, left Israel in 1948. But he returned to Australia in 1990 with a remarkable series of paintings, The Kimberley Fantasy, which included this work, as a kind of homage to his father, who he described as a man driven to prove to himself that his fantasy was an impossibility. So the question that we're asking, I guess, tonight is what might have been if this Kimberley scheme has eventuate, had eventuated, and I'm, I guess I'm jump taking as my jumping off point to answer this question, this fantasy, this representation of Bergner representing the fantasy of his father. And the one, the possible future, the possible history that he imagines is one of a centre of Jewish, particularly Yiddish culture, that plants itself in the Australian outback. Yiddish was the thousand-year-old language of the Jews of Eastern Europe, originating in the 10th century as a dialect of German and written in the Hebrew alphabet and mixed with Hebrew, Aramaic and a smattering of ancient Romance languages. Yiddish was the vernacular of millions of Jews across Europe with a rich literary tradition. It was, in fact, no less than the marker of Jewish identity for many Jews up until the annihilation of so many of them during the Holocaust. And the establishment of a Yiddish-speaking cultural community in the heart of the Australian outback never eventuated, of course, though it certainly did in Melbourne, and I want to come back to this later. But I also want to look at the other aspect of what could have been that is depicted in Bergner's painting, the relationship that might have been between the Jewish settlers and Indigenous Australians. It's a bit difficult to see in the slide up here, but if you can make out a group of Aboriginal people gazing up curiously at the strange figure floating above them. Bergner had, in fact, been one of the first artists in Australia to draw attention to the plight of Aboriginal Australians. He had seen his photos, his father's photos of Aborigines from his visit to the Northern Territory. To Yossel, he said, they looked exactly like Jews, dispossessed people. With a passion for social realism and a concern for social justice, throughout his time in Australia, Bergner painted scenes of Indigenous Australians, impoverished, displaced, and often against a background of what he imagined was happening to Jews in Poland. But this painting, of course, is from a much later period, and it's hard to know what the Aboriginal figures in the painting make of the strange figure floating above them. But this theme was explored in depth in the 1990s by two Australian Jewish artists, Victor Mazner and Shaiki Sneer, who is actually here tonight, who, inspired by their friend Yossel's painting, his story of his father's journey, and in fact the publication of Leon's book, set out in 1995, and I hope it's not too strange, Shaiki, to hear your story being told, um, set out in 1995 to circumnavigate the proposed region of the Jewish settlement and to meet some of the local legendary Aboriginal artists whose work had impressed them at an exhibition of Kimberley Aboriginal art at the NGV in 1993. While in the Kimberley, Shaike and Vic were highly conscious that at the time of the Kimberley plan, Aboriginal ownership of the land was not even considered. They were also profoundly moved by their visit to a place in the region called Mistake Creek, where a massacre of Aboriginal people had taken place in the 1920s or 30s, possibly around the time that the Jewish settlement in Kimberley was being considered, and when Jews in Europe were beginning to suffer persecution at the hands of the Nazis. The work that they produced as a result of their journey, which was shown in an exhibition at Linden Gallery in 1996, 
was as much about the plight of the Aboriginal people of the Kimberley region as it was about the proposed Jewish settlement. Some of the works drew conscious parallels between the prejudice and extreme persecution of both people suffered during the interwar period. But what is most poignant, I think, about the parallels made by Shaikh and Vic in their work is the notion that, as Vic pointed out some years later in his PhD thesis, that if the Jewish settlement project had proceeded as planned, the Aboriginal people of that place would have been displaced by a people who themselves had been displaced. Although, and I must confess to my relief, this particular historical irony did not eventuate, several of the works in Vic and Shaiki's exhibition were self-critical, suggesting historical complicity of Jewish Australians, ignoring or misunderstanding Aborigines and their culture. As Yael Bartana has said of her own work showing here at ACCA, the history that might have been in the Kimberley is very much about the possibility or impossibility of living with others. But I want to go back to what I mentioned earlier about the emergence of a centre of Yiddish cultural life. As we know, of course, this did not happen in the Kimberley, but it did happen right here in Melbourne. Chain migration of Yiddish-speaking migrants to Melbourne began with small numbers in the first decades of the 20th century, increased in the interwar period because of mounting persecution and discrimination in Europe, and peaked in the years after 1945. An estimated 35,000 reached Australia between 1933 and the early 1960s, almost half the number that Isaac Steinberg had imagined might settle in the Kimberley. Melbourne was the destination of most Yiddish-speaking migrants to Australia. In this faraway country, they did their best to recreate much of their old way of life, and Melbourne emerged as a vibrant centre of Yiddish culture, particularly in the suburbs of Carlton and St Kilda. Kadima, the Jewish Library and Cultural Centre, was a hub of education, politics, literature and theatre. Famous Yiddish actors, directors, producers, writers and backstage technicians came to Melbourne from all corners of the Yiddish-speaking world and created a lively and vibrant Yiddish theatre culture. For almost a century, a Yiddish newspaper was published as an adjunct to the weekly Australian Jewish News, and in the same period, almost 70 Yiddish books were published in Melbourne. A Yiddish day school, Shalom Aleichem College, was established in 1975 and remains to this day one of the few Yiddish day schools in the world. Yiddish-speaking migrants ran stalls at Victoria Market and cafes in St Kilda, such as the iconic Café Scheherazade, bringing Eastern European Jewish cuisine to the culinary landscape of multicultural Melbourne. As writer Arnold Zabel describes, the story of Yiddish in Melbourne is epic, with larger-than-life characters from all corners, fiery idealists, activists and dreamers, survivors and resistors, and arduous journeys from all corners of the globe and all for Yiddish, a language of the people, a deeply expressive hybrid synthesised from centuries of wanderings and intimate mother tongue, rich with the salt of the earth. And all of this, of course, is the subject of, of an exhibition that we currently have at the Jewish Museum of Australia, which is called Mama Loshan, How Yiddish Made a Home in Melbourne. And I encourage you all, of course, to come along and see it. But one of the most interesting aspects for me of the um, Yiddish-speaking community that came to Melbourne is that many of them came from a background strongly affiliated with the Bund, a Jewish labour movement founded in Lithuania in 1897. And I want to come back here to making the connection back to the Kimberley scheme. The Bund rested on three platforms. Socialism, doikait, a Yiddish word which means hearness, a faith in Jewish life and culture in the diaspora, and Yiddish language as the language in which that culture is lived. So somewhat like the ideas of the Jewish Territorialist Organisation and the Freeland League in the early 20th century, the concept of doikait, as it was brought here, of hearness, as was brought here by the Yiddish-speaking migrants who did come to Melbourne, though not to the Kimberley, is a kind of counter-narrative to Zionism. Zionism places Israel at the centre of Jewish life and culture. To some extent, this creates a construction of Jewishness and Jewish identity that for a diaspora Jew is already always predicated on a place elsewhere. I think this is something that's very much relevant at the heart of contemporary Jewish life in Australia today, to imagine what it is and to reimagine for our future what is it to have a Jewish identity that is grounded in here-ness, in what it means to be here in Australia. 
the Kimberley scheme in the 1930s, a history that never was, and Yael Bartana's fictional Jewish Renaissance movement in Poland, a future that just might be, suggest alternative notions of home, place and identity that I think are highly relevant and suggestive of possibilities for the Australian Jewish diaspora and perhaps other diasporas today. Thank you. Thanks a lot for that, Rebecca. And last but of course not least is uh, Ellie Goldman, who's a student of uh, Yiddish and Hebrew at Monash University and the chairperson for the Australian Youth Zionist Council. Welcome, Ellie. Thank you. I, I want to start by sharing a bit of a personal story. I think this sort of highlights the idea that this is a, a forgotten history in the fact when I mentioned that I was speaking at this panel for the first time, I heard that um, Stein, uh, Isaac Sandberg actually stayed with um, my great-grandparents when he came to visit and, you know, the fact that <laughs> this is such a momentous thing, such a big thing, you know, to happen in, a, in the Jewish history of Australia to have never been mentioned in, um, in my household is, is quite interesting um, that the the first time I've ever heard of it, it's quite remarkable. Um, and I, I think I'm gonna take more of a theoretical approach uh, to looking at the question about um, what might have been for, um, had this Jewish utopia gone ahead and also what the future scenarios might have been for the Jewish, um, for, sorry, for the, the new diaspora. Um, and when, when I th thought of this, I, I thought of three main questions. Um, one being, how, how, do, how is, a movement like this, how the territorialist movement, how is it created and it, how did it, what, what sort of happened, how did, where did it go wrong? Um, how central, being from the youth movement world, how central is, is the concept of youth activity? And also, what would this idea of a diaspora, what does that mean? What would it, the, the, if, a, if the central is in the Kimberley, what does that mean for the rest of the Jewish, rest of the Jewish communities around the world? Um, and I want to start with the idea of how, how is a movement created and this is something that um, Leon spoke about with the idea of who, who was opposing this and how could that have, how, how, could, um, how could we have sustained this idea of a, a Jewish autonomous region in the Kimberleys and something I use when I teach leadership is this wonderful video on YouTube of a single man dancing in, in a I think it's a swimming pool and, um, or a garden somewhere. And he starts dancing and you see people walking around and looking at him funny and then slowly two people start to join him and they're dancing around this garden and then five more people come and seven more people come and slowly everybody starts to dance. And it's this real notion of the idea of leadership and creating new ideas starts from the top and filters down. And the, the main people is really your, your critical mass and that's where you get an, an idea moving. And I, I think when we have the, the, the main, I guess, um, opposition of the Kimberley plan being from the Jewish community itself is perhaps where, where, it, went wrong, where it went wrong. Um, and that, that really to me is something that's, that's central in, in this idea. Um, going back to the idea of, of uh, youth activism, I think the Jewish community um, in the diaspora really changed itself in the, the time of the Enlightenment and anti-Semitism when there was this idea of the, the European weak Jew. And then the, the, idea, the ideas of Zionism and territorialism really brought out a new form of Jew, the, the Jew who, who, the strong Jew, um, who could build, build things, build a nation, and really, with, I've read stories of, um, my main background comes through the Zionist world, um, I've read stories about building Israel and, you know, doing things with your own hands and creating this new identity, and um, this is something that, as, as well as the Zionists, the, ter the territorialists wanted to do, you know, it's not, I think that the, the, um, painting Rebecca showed sh shows, yes, we wanted to bring, you know, a Yiddish theatre to the Kimberleys, but also we wanted to bring 
you know, scientists and agriculture. This is something that wasn't really the, the idea of the stereotypical, I guess, shtetl Jew who, yes, was involved in agriculture, but it was more of a, uh, I, I guess, uh, a, a weak view of, uh, had a weak view of themselves. Um, and going on, on youth activism, um, this is something that has been a part of Jewish culture from the get-go when you look at the Bible. Um, you've got stories of young people going, and you know, we're not sure how young they are, really, but um, young people going up and doing things, um, being fathers of, of nations and, and leaders coming from, um, from qu quite a young age. And um, the, the new Jewish movement was really brought up by the youth. And I think that um, this is something that would have been really in, in prevalent in, in a, the Jewish um, community in the Kimberleys. Um, where, and I think it's part of our, our community today, really, where we have lots of youth activism. Um, we have seven different youth movements in the Melbourne Jewish community, uh, six of them Zionist and one of them uh, a Bundist youth movement, um, SCIF. And that really shows the, the diversity of our community um, as a, you know, as a, as a community where we are. And it, it not only are we involved, are the youth involved in being a part of our own Jewish welfare system, helping other Jews, Jewish continuity, um, creating fun events for ourselves. It's also about reaching out to the wider community. Um, helping other communities in need. Um, I've attended events with, you know, um, the Sudanese community, and I, I think that's something that the Jewish communities are, are very aware. They're, they're aware of the, the other as, as themselves. Um, I've sort of lost my train of thought. Sorry. And so this this would have rung true. I, I seem to think in the Kimberley Jewish community um, in that, that they would have, that the youth and, and the community itself would have been um, active with, with the people who they were living around, being aware that, that they're not alone um, in itself. And my third, third idea, when, when the question was posed to me, it was posed to me as what future scenarios might pose, what might pose for the new diaspora? And coming from the, the Zionist background, the, the, the word diaspora in this context I found quite troubling because for, for me, um, this word diaspora is, is um, to do with gathering the, um, the in gathering of the Jewish people in the, the in the state of in the not necessarily state of Israel, but the the, the land, the historical land of the Jewish people. Um, and this is something that's both a religious and secular notion of the historical significance of the land of Israel. And so, to, to me, when looking at the Kimberley, or, uh, the Kimberley Autonomous Region as, as a sort of central place for Jewish activity um, is, is interesting because it, it's a very um, Ashkenazi, a very European concept of, um, and it, it, it's not a, a unifying global Jewish concept of, of everyone coming together, which is, I guess, which is what split the Zionist and the territorialist. Um, and I, I think in general, there's just so many questions that this, um, this poses, you know, um, and from the other speakers, I, I've just been completely, um, it's completely enlightened me as the different realities of the Jewish people and different realities of Australia. So thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Ellie. And I know I've got uh, a lot of questions arising out of the discussion, but since we don't have all that much time, I thought I might just throw open the, the for some questions from the floor to see if uh, any of you have any any burning questions you'd like to ask at this stage? Any takers? Yeah, do we have a roving microphone? 
Great. One off the back. Um, thanks. Yes, I wanted to ask. Could you just stand up? Okay. Here I am. Thanks. I wanted to ask a question about the uh, the relevance of the story also to non-Jewish Australians, and the particular hopes that uh, the story of the settlement evoked at the time. I'm thinking particularly of the other end of Australia, Tasmania, where the uh, figure of Crutchley Parker saw that uh, the settlement could create the possibility of there being a kind of a mini-Soviet state, mm -hmm. uh, which would have a Paris of the South. And uh, he didn't obviously get backing for it, but at least it set in train a certain idea of another Australia at the time. I'm just wondering whether there are other similar ripples occurring then. Leon, do you want to have a go Critchley, responding to Critchley that? Parker was interesting, fascinating character. He met Steinberg and uh, Critchley, Critchley Parker was absolutely hell-bent on setting up a settlement similar to the Kimberley scheme in uh, Tasmania, around Port Davey, around an area where even the most experienced bushwalkers don't go to. Uh, Critchley Parker went there by himself. I've read his diaries when he was dying. He, was di he died there. He survived, his last days were spent on aspirin. And... Um, Critchley Parker, I've always said, is the only Australian martyr who died for a Jewish cause. And I mean, and I think that's quite significant, quite significant. He's, he's, it's, an, it's an extraordinary story. It's an extraordinary story. And certainly, but, but I think Critchley Parker was also coming from the perspective of a lot of Australians who were supporting Steinberg. Um, it was very much a... a a point of view of we had to populate our part of the world. Not necessarily because they were worried about the Japanese spreading down, but just because Australia was so big and yet so sparsely populated. And um, so visions like Critchley Parker's were, were part of that, mm. certainly. Rebecca and Ellie, how, how successful do you think the Jewish settlers might have been in, in taming this incredibly wild and, and harsh terrain? I mean, many, many governments, um, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Leon had subsidised attempts to, to settle the Kimberleys long before the Kimberley uh, plan was imagined as a, as a Jewish colony, and they all failed. So, so could the Jews have pulled it off? Um, to take, to take the, the words of Herzl, Theodore Herzl, if you will, it is no dream. Um, and I, I, if, I, I think... I'm going back to, to um, my knowledge of Israel, but if the the Zionists can drain the swamps and build, have mm. trees flourishing in the Negev, um, in the desert of Israel, I think it, it, it could have been a possibility. Um, the, the Jews are a very resilient nation, they're a very resilient group of people, um, and at a time when they were looking for, for a, you know, a place where they could build a home, I think it could have been possible. But they're also a very metropolitan people, right? I mean, what would have stopped them uh, going to, to Sydney and Melbourne and, and Perth? Yeah. I, was, I was actually... I was, sorry, Ellie. I was imagining... I mean, one of the things that, you know, Ellie says about... You know, when I was chatting to someone about talking here tonight and saying, oh, can you just imagine all the, the Polish Jews in their coats coming from the Polish winter, coming to the desert and having to deal with this weird landscape? And I kind of think, well, that's actually what happened when they went to Palestine because it was equally sort of strange mm. and foreign, the landscape. And much of, you know, the question that you asked then is, as Ellie said, what, you know, they actually did. Um, the, the wisdom of whether it should have been done, I mean, it, there's serious questions being asked from an environmental perspective now in Israel, from, you know, the perspective of the, um, you know, the, the rights of Palestinians in the land. And I think what I was talking about, and I think what Victor and Shaiki and their work said, you know, we would have opened up the whole same can of worms, I think, had that project been successful in the Kimberley. We would have had this whole set of... I was imagining... You know, what would be, there's been a lot of angst in the Jewish community recently about um, Jewish continuity. It's a perennial issue, but there's been um, some research undertaken at Monash University that casts very gloomy pictures about the, you know, the future of the Jewish community in Australia. And I was imagining, like, what might that debate have been if there was a Jewish community in Kimberley today? And they would have all been throwing up their hands at all the young Jews going off to live in the big cities and no one wanting to stay around in the Kimberley anymore. So, you know, there's all sorts of wonderful questions that are opened up about what it might have been and should have, should, 
perhaps never have happened. Uh, Ellie, Leon was saying earlier that a lot of the most vocal opposition to the plan came from the Zionist movement. Do you think that the, the founding of a, a Jewish colony in the Kimberleys would have made the founding of an Israeli state in Palestine more difficult? Um, I, I think one of the most interesting points that Leon brought up was the fact that this is, Australia being one of the colonies and the, pre, um, the British having the, the mandate over, over Palestine, that, that would have been a major factor in, um, in creating the state, um, the modern state of Israel today. Um, but I think that one thing that, that perhaps wouldn't have, um, wouldn't have been a, a negation to the creation of the state of, of Israel is, and, and the Zionist ideals is, um, as I mentioned, the idea of the Kimberley and the, the territorialist, it's all a very European narrative. Um, and it, it doesn't include the, the, the Jewish communities of, of, the, of the East, um, which were, are also and were at the time um, in, in strife. And I think that the, the Zionist, um, Zionists would have had backing in, in their sort of their need for a, a Jewish state as well. Ben, I've just got a comment up the back Please. here, if that's okay. Hi, my name's Caroline. Should um, we start up? Thanks. Caroline Fry. Just making a comment, this was not, that um, colony in Kim, the Kimberley was probably not the first um, weird utopic colony that had been set up in Australia because there was one sim similar, but not Jewish, um, in Mildura that was set up as a colony um, by the Chaffee brothers and they brought out, it was advertised around the world um, to bring out, it was a utopic vision for a new, wasn't aligned to Victoria or um, New South Wales, it was pre-Federation and that drew out people from all around the world to set up this weird vision of a, a sort of like, almost like a socialist state up in new Mildura and I know this because my um, forebears mm. were lured out from England to set up um, the first, um, there was one of the churches up there, but it Are failed. any of you familiar the with the Mildura Colony? The whole thing failed, but there was obviously something in the air about setting up these utopic colonies in Australia. And it wasn't the first, yeah, so. It, it um, I, I just want to say, I mean, that, that was all fitted in with the um, mood at the time. Yeah. I keep coming back to that, that, you know, there was a real feeling here that we had to populate this world. I mean, I mean, Australia today only has 22 million. And, you know, Australia's a lot bigger than what it was then. Now, Australia only has a population the size of Calcutta. And, um, but it was a, it's a lot bigger than what it was then. And people were... Absolute, and, and all the debates at the time, when you read the newspaper accounts and debates in Parliament at the time, were all about how the hell do we populate this country? You know, uh, you know we're vulnerable. Uh, we, we need development. And, uh, you know, and so you, you, you would have all these schemes coming up. You had a, a whole lot of numerous other schemes in Western Australia like that, which came to nothing. Um, where they would bring out British migrants uh, into the hard fields of Western Australia and all the British migrants died <laughs> because they couldn't cope. I mean, it was, it was just, it was, uh, it was really, it was really difficult. It was do, really difficult. Do we have any other questions? Perhaps down the front. Uh, Caitlin, can we have a mic down the front? We can. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> we had a agricultural settlement in Shepparton, a Jewish settlement, and I was wondering whether there was any connection between that in, as an example or whatever with the Kimberley mm. settlement. Any of you familiar with that? Uh, no, no, that was, a, that was where Dick Pratt came from, wasn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, no, there wasn't, there was no connection there. Yeah. Um, my grandparents actually met on that settlement. Um, in, in Shepparton, another story about my family. Um, and um, that, 
that was um, a settlement just like many in Poland called a hachshara, a preparation sort of settlement, um, in a, a place where it was actually came from the Zionist youth movement, where um, groups of young Jews would come together and prepare to, to for um, l um, intense labor, agricultural labor, to to build um, agricultural Jewish communities in in Palestine um, for the purpose of building kibbutzim. Another question? I don't actually have a question. I'm, I wanted to um, question um, just some facts um, that Leon said. Dr. Steinberg wasn't in Lenin's cabinet in the, after the October Revolution. He was in a Menshevik. He was in the first... He was, um, yeah, he, he became, what, what he, was he, was original, he was originally a Menshevik and then was put into Lenin's cabinet. He actually went in. And, well, he didn't, said, he, that's not what he told us. <laughs> well. He t the story that we heard when he was out here during the war, was during the war he was mm. here, wasn't it? And um, I was around the table with him um, and he was telling his experience. Mm. And he said that he was with the Mensheviks. He was originally with the Mensheviks, yeah. and then when and, he, uh, he, he wasn't he, after he, October, he didn't serve in the. He went. He went in. He went in briefly, and then there was a falling out between mm. the social revolutionaries yeah, and the Bolsheviks. Yeah. And so he 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 kind of he went from one to the next, but briefly, but briefly. Okay, we probably have time for one more question or comment. Yes, of course you're down the back. All right. <laughs> Hi, this is a question for Rebecca. Um, I was interested in the piece of artwork that you framed your talk around um, and your discussion of the idea that had a colony been established in the Kimberleys, there would have been a kind of double dispossession of the Indigenous um, population up there. But it struck me as a somewhat false anxiety um, about the possibility of the double dispossession of Indigenous Australians. Um, and I'm, given that it didn't happen, and I'm wondering if there's comparable artwork um, by Jewish artists that is interested or expresses a similar anxiety about Palestinian dispossession. There, I don't know a great deal about contemporary Israeli art, but I do know, and I'm very certain that there is, would be a very significant number of artists working in Israel today, and artists, contemporary artists, I guess, around the world, but I imagine, I would say, particularly in Israel, who are very much concerned about that question and are producing artwork addressing that concern. So, given that I'm not an expert on the area, that's probably as much as I should say, but the aside to say quite emphatically, yes. Do, do we have time for one more? There is an artist called David Reeb, R-E-E-B. If you can see on the internet, you'll see how pro-Palestinian he is. Great, well that's, uh, I think, unfortunately all I've got time for, but uh, could you please all join with me in welcoming thanking Rebecca, Ellie and Leon and Aka for hosting this discussion. <laughs>